in our previous study, the Apostle Paul explained to the Galatian believers and to us why God gave us the law, all those rules and rituals and regulations that we find in the Old Testament of the Bible. We learned that the law was given to help us see the undeniable truth that we are sinners who fall woefully short of God's standard of what is good. And so our only hope of salvation is God sending us a savior, which he did in the form of his only begotten son, Jesus. The law's purpose was to point us to Jesus, but the work of Jesus didn't just save us. It's even better than that. As every good infomercial says, but wait, there's more. So let's jump in at Galatians 3.26 and find out what else is included in this special offer of salvation. We read this. For, and then I have the whole rest of the verse underlined in my Bible. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This verse is is glorious, it is incredible, and I would encourage you to spend significant time just thinking on it. As wonderful as it is to be saved, it doesn't stop there. Through faith in Jesus, we're also made sons of God. We become children of God, we become part of his family. And in our uh, enlightened, and I use the term loosely, our enlightened society, Some may take offense to these male-specific pronouns, but if you were to change them, you would actually miss the radical nature of what Paul is saying. Because at this place and time in history, women could not inherit property. They could not receive an inheritance. So what is Paul saying regarding salvation and all the benefits of belonging to Jesus? He's saying you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that there's an equal inheritance for men and for women in the kingdom of God. And I would just say additionally, never forget that Jesus describes the church as his bride. So the bride of Christ includes men. God is even-handed in his gender-specific metaphors and they're very intentional when he chooses to do them. So I'd encourage you to stay away from any school of thought that says we need to go to gender-neutral pronouns in the Bible because God uses them specifically in specific places. And I feel that I should use this opportunity to clarify something as well that many believers get mixed up about. Every person is not a child of God. We're not all children of God on planet earth. How does Paul say in verse 26 that we become sons of God? How does he say that happens? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Those who have not placed their faith in Christ Jesus are not God's children. They are, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.3, by nature children of wrath. So even though you might see the Pope on TV saying we're all God's children and it sounds nice, it's not true. It's not true. And at the end of the day, the only opinion on that that really matters is God. Because he's the one who would have to agree that we're his children. Just as you can't go up to Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg and say, you are my father, dad. He has to actually agree with that assessment in order for it to be so. And God says, those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus, he says, those are my children. Those are the ones I adopt. And so for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, this is a glorious truth. We've been brought in and adopted into the family of God, the family that has a perfect and loving father. 
You could write books about this reality, books about how understanding this changes everything. It is so worth meditating on, reflecting on, and studying. So would you write this down? When we place our faith in Jesus, we receive salvation and sonship in the family of God. We receive salvation and sonship in the family of God. Which leads to the logical question, well, well, how is it even possible that we can become children of God? And so Paul answers that in the next verse, verse 27. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So because Jesus has given us his righteousness, we're robed in it, we're covered in it. From heaven's perspective, we are as faithful, holy, and beautiful as Jesus. Paul's not speaking here about physical baptism, and that's important because if he was speaking about physical baptism, he would be preaching salvation by baptism because he would be saying a person has not received Christ until they've been baptized. But he's obviously not saying that because for this whole letter, he's been hammering away on the idea of salvation by faith. He's using the term baptism here to refer to giving one's life to Jesus, immersing oneself in Jesus, identifying oneself in Christ. Paul talks about this in Romans 6. He says, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. This is Paul's point. His point is that our identity is found in Jesus. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever your ethnicity, when you placed your life in the hands of Jesus, Jesus became your identity. And from heaven's perspective, you are just like him. And our identity in Jesus trumps our ethnic identity. It trumps our political identity. It trumps our sexual identity, everything else. From heaven's perspective, we look like brothers and sisters of Jesus. For the Father, it's the easiest decision in the world to look at us and say, I want you in my family. Because the way the Father feels about Jesus, he feels about us. We're going to read about that in just a little bit. Jesus has made us beautiful and glorious in the truest sense of those words. Now in verse 28, Paul's going to push this idea even further that our identity is in Christ and that through him, we all receive sonship into the family of God. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female for, and then underline this, you are all one in Christ Jesus. You're all one in Christ Jesus. That is the conclusion that the gospel should lead us to regarding one another in the church. It's the reason that the gospel destroys things like racism and this doctrine was Paul's solution for healing the divisions that had emerged between the Jews and the Gentiles in the churches in Galatia. He reminded them, you're all one. Do you recall the popular morning prayer that many Jewish men prayed at this time? Thank you, Lord, that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. You see, what Paul is doing in this verse is he is intentionally attacking all of the prejudices in that specific prayer. He's saying there is neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile. 
There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. To Jesus, you're all the same. He loves you equally. You have equal standing with him. Everyone is brought into the family of God and saved the same way through Jesus. Human distinctions lose their meaning in light of the common salvation we share in Jesus. Before God, Jews are not better than Gentiles. Free men are not better than slaves. Men are not better than women. One ethnicity is not superior to another. In the church, we are all one in Christ Jesus. So would you make a note of this? In the family of God, we all find our identity in Jesus. We all find our identity in Jesus. And I would just say, when you're reading the rest of the New Testament, this verse is very helpful in interpreting Paul's other writings about gender roles in the church and in marriage and in family. Because while Paul does write about things like how God's design for the family is that it be led by the husband, this verse makes it clear that when Paul does that, he's writing about roles, he's not writing about importance because he's just said explicitly here in one of his earliest epistles that we're all equal in Christ. The biblical view is that men and women were created to fulfill different roles, different roles, but they are of equal value and equal importance. And the roles are not assigned on the basis of some sort of superiority. They are based on God's design. There is neither male nor female when it comes to our standing before God. We have equal importance but different roles in this life. And that's incredibly important to understand on so many levels. It's also why I think it's especially important that while our culture loves to put down the idea of things like motherhood. It's incredibly important that as Christians and in the church that that is elevated, that we understand that that is as important as anything else that a woman or a man is called to because it's a calling by God. Equal importance, different roles. And we also need to understand that when Paul wrote this, this whole idea of equality was radical. Not only in the church, but in secular society, the idea that men and women were spiritual equals was, was shocking. This was elevating women in the church to a status they didn't enjoy out in the rest of culture and the rest of society. This whole idea of equality, not just hypothetically, but in a very real way, created situations where you might have a master and a slave attending the same church, and the slave might be an elder while the master is a deacon or a congregant. And so in the church, the slave is actually holding a position of greater responsibility than the master and is in authority over the master. That can actually happen in the church. This was shocking to society at the time. And as a side note, I didn't have a perfect place to fit this in, but I felt it was important enough to mention. If you'll recall his history, his life story, Paul was, was clearly violently racist against Gentiles and especially against Christians back when he was religiously Jewish. But when he had a revelation of Jesus, all that began to change. And when we find Paul in Antioch, Paul is one of five teachers and prophets that are leading the church there. Barnabas is another of them. But one of them is named Simeon and Acts 13.1 tells us that Simeon was black. Paul's beloved son in the faith was Timothy who had a Gentile father and a Jewish mother. So when Paul's writing about this idea of equality, it wasn't just hyperbole for him. 
He, in Antioch, he ministered alongside a black Gentile Christian as an equal in leadership, and he poured his heart and soul into ministering to a young man he would have considered a half-breed earlier in his life, and Paul mentored him as much as he could. When the gospel gets inside you, it changes the way you see the world. It changes the way you see other people. And I also couldn't help but notice that Paul doesn't follow up these thoughts about equality with commands like, therefore, Christians should never own slaves. Therefore, women should be allowed to legally inherit property. Women should be allowed to vote. Christians should fight against racial segregation in society. So why not? Why doesn't Paul take that logical step and tell people, therefore, in light of this, that we're all one in Christ, why don't you do all these things? Why doesn't he do that? I believe it's because change always happens from the inside out in all of us, even in the church. Paul had experienced it himself. You see, his, his racism, his bigotry wasn't cured by arguments or commands or doctrine. It was cured by encountering Jesus and the gospel, and the gospel working its way from Paul's spirit out into every area of his life. And I believe Paul and the Holy Spirit knew that if believers were transformed by the Spirit of God internally, if they understood the gospel, it would naturally begin to work its way out into their behavior over time. Because we all know that bigotry can't be cured solely by passing laws in society or in the church. There's a heart change that's required. And so that's why, think about this, whenever you hear the incredible story of someone who was violently racist or violently bigoted and, and they have a dramatic life change, their testimony is never, you know what, when I learned that there were laws against racism, I said, I need to change. That's never how their story goes, ever. In every one of those situations, something happened that changed them on a heart level. A person they hated responded to them in kindness when they were in need. Or God got a hold of their heart. And how our world needs to understand this, that laws are not going to make us love each other. Calling each other names sure isn't gonna make us love each other. Mocking each other won't make us love each other. Demonizing each other won't make us love each other. Controlling other people's speech is not gonna make people love each other. We need a heart change. We need our hearts to be arrested by the truth of the gospel. So then you can almost hear that the Jewish believers would have said at this point, but, but Paul, I mean, what about our Jewish identity and heritage? Our, our rich history that dates back to Abraham and then even earlier than that in the Torah. I mean, are we just throwing all that away and saying it doesn't matter? So in verse 29, Paul reassures them by giving them this wonderful insight. He says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He says, Abraham's children, the heirs of the promise that God gave him in Genesis 15, are not those who share Abraham's ethnicity 
They are those who share his faith. So whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, a man or a woman, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then you are one of Abraham's descendants. You are standing in that great legacy of faith that goes all the way back to Genesis 15 and those promises that God made to Abraham all those years ago. So yeah, that heritage still matters, but it's a heritage of faith, not of ethnic identity. In chapter 4, Paul says, let's slow down for a minute. He's going to say, I don't want any of you to miss the significance of just how incredible it is that we've been brought into the family of God. So he says in 4 verse 1, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. The picture Paul is conjuring is that of a boy whose father is wealthy. That child is an heir who's destined to receive great wealth. And while that child might be the master of all that wealth, in the sense that he is the heir, currently he is not that different from a slave because he doesn't have access to any of that wealth. He's under the care, direction, and authority of tutors, nannies, etc., until he reaches the appropriate age. He's an heir apparent, not an heir de facto. In Roman culture, and most cultures at this time, there was a specific age when a boy was considered to graduate into manhood. The idea of a bar mitzvah that still happens in Judaism. It's usually in their early teens, and the child of a wealthy man would be under the care of a guardian to about the age of 14, But then they'd also be under one or more trustees till they reach the age of 25. Which if you don't know, in in men, it takes until the age of 25 for the frontal cortex of the brain to fully develop. This is what doctors call the thinky-thinky part of the brain. It's the brain that tells you when something is a bad idea. So that has not fully developed in men till they reach the age of 25. So apparently the Romans had a pretty high level of insight right here. So only then would that child be able to fully control the estate, the inheritance that the father had planned for him. And so here's the parallel that Paul is drawing. God gave a promise to Abraham that in the future he would send a savior through Abraham's family line and that savior would bring salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit to all who would receive him. As we talked about last week, man soon stopped recognizing his need for a savior So the Lord gave the Jewish people the law so that they could look into it as one looks into a mirror. And when you compared yourself to the perfection of God in the law, you would realize that you fall hopelessly short of his standards and could therefore never earn your salvation by trying to be a good person or keeping the law. That put Israel in the place of a son of a wealthy man. There was this promised inheritance coming in the future, this guarantee that a savior is coming, the Holy Spirit is coming, God's blessings are coming. But in the meantime, they were under a tutor. They were under a guardian, a trustee, which was the law. But at the time appointed by the Father, when God would send the promised savior, Israel would come of age, so to speak, and be able to receive the inheritance that God had promised to Abraham. Paul is now going to speak as a, as a Jewish Christian to other Jewish believers. And most of the time in Galatians, when Paul says we, he's talking to Jewish believers. When he says you, he's talking to Gentile believers. So he says in verse 3, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. 
Paul uses that phrase elements of the world in Colossians 2 as well, and it literally means the law. Like you could put a line through it in your Bible and write the law if you want, because that's what it means. We were in bondage to the law. So Paul, speaking to his Jewish Christian brothers, uses the analogy of an heir to help them understand their relationship with the law. He says, we were like a child who was an heir. We had a future destiny, a future inheritance, but we had not yet attained it. The law held us in bondage the way that a nanny or a guardian would, keeping us busy learning our ABCs until the time came for us to receive that promised inheritance, the salvation that God had promised Abraham he would send. God's ultimate plan was that the law would be written on the hearts of men, that their behavior wouldn't be driven by laws or a list of do or don'ts, but their behavior would rather be driven by the Holy Spirit that would indwell every man. Because the law tells us how we should live, but does not give us the power to do it, we find ourselves in bondage to the law when we're under it. And this is why the world is so full of hypocrisy. Because without the Holy Spirit living inside you, you have a conscience telling you what you should do, but no power to do it. No power to live it out at all. So would you write this down? The law held men in bondage because it revealed what they should do, but did not provide the power to do it. It revealed what they should do, but it did not provide the power to do it. Verse four, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Underline adoption, adoption as sons. So when the appointed time came, Jesus, the only begotten son of the Father, came to earth as a man, lived a perfect life in our place, perfectly fulfilling the law, and then died and rose again in our place to redeem us so that we could be free to become adopted sons and daughters of the Father. When someone's in slavery, you can redeem them, you can set them free by paying a determined price. We were slaves to the law, and that meant there was a price on our head if we ever wanted to be set free, and the price was death. Jesus died in our place, and when he did, he set us free from our bondage to the law, which leads to death. But as free men and women, we weren't just turned loose and told to fend for ourselves. We were instead freed so that we could be immediately adopted into the family of God. It's the work of Jesus on the cross that makes us come of age to the point where we can now step into our inheritance as sons of God and receive that salvation. Now there's a whole bunch of things we could talk about regarding Paul's term, the fullness of the time, because he's alluding to the fact that Jesus came at a very specific time in history for very specific reasons. But instead of getting into all that, I've put a note on your outline that directs you to the website to another study we've already done where we unpack all those details and I'd encourage you to check that out on your own this week. So in all of this air talk, Paul is working a concept known as sonship, sonship. It was a legal term in the Greco-Roman world. A wealthy man who had no children could, if he so desired, adopt one of his servants as a son, bestowing on him the legal status of sonship. And at that moment of adoption, that servant would cease to be a slave and would receive all the financial and legal benefits of a biological son. You might recall when we studied in Genesis, Abraham was actually this close to doing that with his lead servant because he assumed that they were never going to have a son. It would be an incredible new life of privilege. It would be 
like a really bad lifetime TV channel movie or something where you switch places with somebody and you wake up one day and suddenly you're wealthy and powerful and have a life of privilege when the day before you were a slave. It's a remarkable metaphor for what the Lord has done for each of us. And it's also one that I'd say most Christians don't understand. Most Christians, well hopefully every Christian, understands that Jesus took our sin. But most Christians don't understand the other half of the equation. That Jesus also gave us the blessings and the rights and privileges that he had as a son of the Father. And when we don't realize that, when we don't understand our new status as sons and daughters of God, it's like we're only half saved by grace. We've received forgiveness of sins, but we're still living under the impression that we have to strive to live a good life in order to earn and maintain God's favor and blessings. But we don't. Because we've been adopted as sons and daughters, our relationship with the Father is based on our position as his children. It's not based on our performance or our behavior. Jesus removed the curse we deserved and gave us the blessings that he deserves. He didn't just deliver us from death row, he robed us in his righteousness and brought us into the family of God. The freedom that Paul is writing about is found in remembering this. Jesus didn't just erase our sin, he gave us his righteousness. He gave us his status as a son of God as well. And there's one thing that reveals whether or not we truly understand this. One thing, it's this. Whether we live our lives trying to earn God's favor or whether we live our lives enjoying God's favor. Do you wake up praying a, a desperate prayer every morning of, oh God, help me to just screw up less today and uh, at least vaguely resemble a Christian in public, that would be great. I mean, I'd ask you to help me resemble a Christian in my own home, but that seems like a really big ask. Is that the prayer or is the prayer just, God, thank you that you love me, that you're with me, that you're for me, that I'm your son, that I'm your daughter. Help me to just enjoy you today. Help me to just enjoy you today. Whichever one of those two ways you lean will reveal whether or not you've really grasped the reality that you're a child of God that there's no performance that you have to give to earn God's favor or even to pay him back. You're a child of God. And this really reveals the heart of our heavenly father. It reveals why he saved us. He saved us because he desired to share his goodness with us as sons and daughters. He saved us so that he could adopt us. And we have that same urge to share our goodness with children because we're made in the image of God. You've heard me talk about it many times before. There's not a lot of logical reasons to have children, but there's something in us that just desires to share our lives with them, and we get that from God. Our inheritance, like our adoption, is not a prize to be won. It's a gift from God. Make a note of this. Our relationship with the Father is based on our position as his children, not on our behavior. It's based on our position as his children, not on our behavior. And I know that that can be hard if, if you grew up with a father whose love for you was based 
on your performance or your behavior. All I can tell you is that he's a perfect father who loves you because you are his child. In verse six, Paul says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for father, but it's the informal term that a child would use for their father. It's the equivalent of the word daddy. And when we understand our position in relation to the father, when we understand that he chose to adopt us and to make us his own children because he loves us, when we understand that we will begin to approach him with the confidence of a child who knows their father loves them. And that kind of child just goes up to their father whenever they want for any reason with their arms open and cries out, Daddy, fully confident that the only thing awaiting them are the welcoming arms of a father who delights in them. And your heavenly father delights in you. He delights in you. He loves you with the love of a perfect father because that's who he is. He is the perfect father. Paul says that's what the Holy Spirit does in us if we'll listen to him. He reminds us that we are children of the Father and he prompts us over and over again to draw near to the Father with the confidence of a well-loved child. What the Spirit of God does in us is he gives us the personal experience, the feeling, the awareness of being an adopted son or daughter of God. In Romans 8, Paul writes, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Again, one of these concepts, when you begin to elaborate on it as a pastor, you can feel people getting uncomfortable because it's so glorious, it's almost scandalous when you actually understand what he's saying when he says the Holy Spirit is there to confirm to us that we're heirs of God joint heirs with Christ. I encourage you to spend some time on the gravity of that statement. Joint heirs with Christ. Staggering about our standing in the family of God. But when you think about it, why does Paul use this word Abba, an Aramaic word, when he's writing to people in Antioch who are all speaking what? Greek. They're all speaking Greek. So so why is he using this word Abba? It's because in Mark 14.36, when he was in Gethsemane, Jesus uses that word when he cries out to his father on the night of his arrest. And so Paul's point is exactly what he wrote, that it's the spirit of Jesus that is the Holy Spirit that comes into our lives. It's the spirit of Christ is what he just said. And so he said what that does is it makes us want to cry out to God the way that Jesus cried out to his Father when he was on the earth. And it means that we can approach our Heavenly Father with the same confidence that Jesus approached him with, which is incredible. Again, we can approach the Father as though we are as beautiful, faithful, and heroic as Jesus because that's what Jesus has made us. That's what he's made us. Now, I know we don't feel like it yet, But that's where we're headed. And that's the status we already have from the Father's perspective. And when we arrive in the presence of God, we will be instantly transformed into bodies that are as redeemed as our spirits are. 
And finally, the whole package will match, which will be a wonderful, wonderful thing. Write this down. We can approach our Heavenly Father the same way Jesus did. We can approach our Heavenly Father the same way Jesus did, knowing that He is as excited to hear from us as He was to hear from Jesus. It's incredible. Verse 7, therefore, underline the rest of verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. I just love that. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if this all sounds a little bit too good to be true, if it sounds like I'm taking things too far and talking about our status as being too close to Jesus in a way that's a little bit too close to comfort, I'd encourage you to study Jesus' high priestly prayer that he prayed to the Father in John 17. I'm just going to read some of it to you so that you can hear from Jesus himself, from the mouth of Jesus himself, just how much he and the Father love us and just how much Jesus wants us to share in his sonship and just how scandalously Jesus has invited us to share in his glory. Jesus said this, it's on your outlines. I do not pray, he's speaking to the Father, for these alone. I'm not just praying for my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And then underline this, that they also may be one in us. So Jesus, his prayer there is, Father, as much as you and I are one, help the church to be one and then help them to be one with us, to share the same unity that we share. Help them to be a part of that. That the world may believe that you sent me. And then he says this, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Again, just, just meditate on that. Think on what he's actually saying there. Hey, hey, the way that the Father glorified Jesus, Jesus says, I'm, I'm sharing that glory and giving it to them as well. I'm inviting them into that. That they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me. And then, and then here's the shocking one. And have loved them as you have loved me. There's Jesus saying explicitly that his father loves us as much as he loves Jesus. It's unbelievable, mind-blowing. And then he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. From the lips of Jesus, he wants to invite us to be where he is. That's his plan for us, so that we can share in his glory, share in his status as heirs of the kingdom, as sons of the Father, daughters of the Father, and enjoy the same unity with him and the Father that he enjoys with the Father. It's absolutely incredible. I've run out of words to explain how incredible what it is that Jesus is actually saying there. However amazing you think the rights and privileges we now have as children of God are, here's what I know, in reality they're infinitely better. They're more incredible 
And in eternity, it's going to be revealed just how glorious and shockingly scandalous God's plans for us are. Paul's plea over and over is this, stop acting like you're slaves trying to earn your master's favor. Stop it. You are children of the living God. Know that, enjoy that, and live accordingly. Live free and full of gratitude, motivated by love instead of duty and fear. In verses eight through 11, Paul's going to more specifically address now Gentile believers as he starts using the pronoun you. And he says in verse eight, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather, more importantly, are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? The basic principle of the world is that we need to save ourselves. And so we will worship whatever we think will fulfill that need, whatever we think will bring us life, transcendence. And as a result, people end up worshiping things like money, sex, fame, nature, and all kinds of stuff, sports, and whatever we worship, we inevitably become enslaved by. Paul points out that before they turned to Jesus, these Gentile believers were slaves to idols, false gods that could do nothing for them. And the law had actually become an idol for the Jew and for the Judaizers. And when we fall into thinking we have to earn God's favors, we do the same thing. We make idols out of things like church attendance, Bible study, prayer. Say, wait a minute, Jeff. Are you telling me that going to church, reading the word, and praying can become idols? Absolutely. Absolutely. The minute you think that those things save you or make you more righteous or that you have an obligation to do them, rather than believing that it's the Lord who makes you righteous, the Lord who saved you, those things become idols and we become like the person who's worshiping the creation instead of the creator. We worship the word instead of the one who wrote it. We worship prayer instead of the one we're praying to. We worship church instead of the one we go there to celebrate. Now please understand me, these are all good things, but they're not God. They're all things that we do because we love God and we wanna know him more, but we don't do them to earn the love of God because we already have that. Paul is saying now that Jesus has come Living under the law is the same as worshiping an idol or a false god. It can't save you and you're just going to be a slave to it. He's saying, are you just missing all those rules and regulations and rituals? Are you just missing the feeling that you're contributing to your own salvation? Is that why you've gone back to the law? Back to burning incense, sprinkling holy water, lighting candles, holding beads and chanting prayers, venerating relics and the bones of body parts of dead saints? Is that why you're walking in specific patterns when you pray? He's saying for all intents and purposes, you're just going back to your paganism. That's all you're doing. You're going back to your paganism because you like the feeling that you were somehow more involved in your salvation. 
In the original Greek, it comes through that Paul is saying, when you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus, you also came to an immediate understanding that all idols and false gods are useless and have no power to save. It's sort of an if this, then that type situation. Paul's conveying that if you understood that Jesus is God and he's the only one who can save you, then you also immediately understood that nothing else can, including the law. So what are you doing? So write this down. Whatever you worship becomes your master. Whatever you worship becomes your master. Whatever you worship inevitably enslaves you. And then you're a slave to a new master. Well, Jeff, what what if I worship God? Am I a slave to Christ then? Absolutely. And it's a wonderful thing to be a slave to Christ because he's the most wonderful master in the world. He's only concerned for your welfare. He's only concerned for your good. He looks out for you, provides for you, takes care of you. Says, don't worry about what you'll eat or drink. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. I'll take care of all these things. Verse 10, he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Here's the idea. These Gentile Christians had begun observing all the Jewish holidays. The full Jewish calendar of ceremonial feasts, which is fine, by the way, as long as you don't do it out of obligation. You want to have a a nice Passover cedar, have some friends over, that's fine. As long as you don't believe you have to do it. As long as you don't believe it makes you more righteous or that you have to do it to be a believer. But the Galatian believers were starting to follow the Jewish calendar of holidays because they were buying into the message of the Judaizers that they had to that it made them more holy, that this is what the serious followers of Jesus do. And to this day, the Jewish religious community is slave to their holidays. Christians are not. But even for the modern Western Christian, we have our holy holidays, don't we? And I'm sorry if you've never heard this before, I'm, I'm not trying to ruin the things that you hold dear, even though I seem to do that a lot. I'm not trying to do that. But all of the so-called holy days in the Christian calendar are all connected to pagan rituals, pagan rites and celebrations. They're just holidays that were Christianized by popes and emperors and so-called leaders of the church across history. We're not obligated to celebrate Christmas. (gasps) This ends with you guys stoning me in the parking lot. I can feel it coming. You're not obligated to celebrate Christmas. It's not an excuse to be a cheap dad, by the way, if that's where you're going. Pastor Jeff said, here's one. You're not even obligated to celebrate Easter. We're told to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus when? On Easter? No, no. Whenever we take communion in remembrance of him. That's when we're to do it. Completely made up holidays, Christmas and Easter fully connected to pagan holidays. Yes, you can still keep doing them. No, there's nothing wrong with that or anything like that, I promise. You're not gonna get to heaven and God's gonna be like, what's up with that whole Christmas thing? That's not gonna happen. He's okay with it. And to all this obligatory calendar keeping in the name of holiness, Paul says, says, what are you doing? You're going back to the bondage of, of rites and procedures and paganism that God freed you from. Every day is a celebration of God's goodness and blessings. 
But there's just something in us, isn't there, that's just drawn to the law, drawn to legalism, drawn to paganism, and the idea that we're going to be saved or blessed or favored because we're good and because we do things that earn us those good things. That's why you see people who live sinful lives, you'd be shocked. Some of the people who give money to churches and charity. And you're like, I would not expect that from you. But it's because they're thinking, I love the idea that I can somehow balance the scales by doing something. Cash. Jesus came to set us free from all of those burdens, but we keep getting drawn back into them like a moth to the flame. Well, Jeff, I just, I just feel more holy if I have rituals to follow. Just feel more holy if there's some smoke around, you know? Some robes that are swishing, a little chanting. Ooh, just does it for me, Jeff. I feel the presence of the Lord. I like all the iconography and the architecture. In his letter to the believers in Colossae, Paul wrote, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying all that stuff, all these rituals, all this, this show of religion, he says it's all false humility. It's just about stroking your own ego and having something you can point to that lets you say, see, I'm religious. I've got God. I'm a good person because I did A, B, C, and D. And Paul says, but here's the problem. None of that actually helps you live a holy life. None of it gives you the power to follow Jesus and say no to sin. None of it actually changes you from the inside out. It's just a show to let you feel better about yourself. He's saying it's not about feelings. It's about the truth because your feelings can't set you free. But Jesus can. And he wants a relationship with us that is based on love, not an exchange of blessings for good works. What parent wants that sort of relationship with their kid? Well, you know, we have a wonderful relationship. I just withhold all affection and blessings unless his behavior is on point. He's responding to it very, very well. Psychologist says he's gonna be depressed for the rest of his life and have significant issues, but he's a good kid. No parent wants that kind of relationship. A good parent wants their children to enjoy their relationship with him. And that's what the Lord wants for us. He doesn't want it to be a burden. And then Paul says in verse 11, I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. It literally means I've labored for you to the point of exhaustion. Paul says, I'm worried. Because I'm worried that you don't really understand what Jesus has done for you. And you're going back to the law, a law that condemns you, that burdens you, that enslaves you and causes you to miss out on the freedom that you have in Jesus. I don't want that for you, says Paul. And it's at this point we can start to think, man, how stupid are these Galatian believers going back to the law like the idiots that they are. But we do the same thing every time we run back to something other than Jesus in search of fulfillment, in search of joy or peace or affirmation. We know they don't work in the long run, right? We all know 
None of us are like, well, I think this will actually bring lasting peace to my life. We know that they're just going to lead to hurt and pain in the long run. We know. And yet we run back to those things that will only enslave us. We run back to sexual sin. We run back to self-medicating. We run back to desperately seeking the attention and approval of other people. One of my favorite verses, I love to share it with my kids, Proverbs 26.11 describes this kind of behavior accurately. As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. I like that because it's graphic and it's nasty. As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. And far too often, we are that fool. Far too often. So what's the solution? The solution is to stand in your identity as a child of God. To run to the Father as a child of God instead of running to your old idols. And I know it's not easy. I'm with you. Because our flesh doesn't want to do it. Doesn't want to do it. But it is simple and it is true. Stand in your identity as a child of God. Stand in your sonship. But Jeff, I don't feel like a son. I don't feel like a daughter of the Father. I didn't have room to put it on your outline, but there's just two things you need to do that will help you with that. The first is study and learn about your status as a child of God. Do a Bible study on this. Begin to learn about it. If someone said to you, congratulations, you have the honorary title of Tsar of Prussia of Eastern Russian states. You know what you're going to do? You're going to be like, okay. But then you're going to go try and find out the answer. What does that mean? And if you're honest, you're probably going to be like, do I get any free stuff? Do I get a discount at restaurants? You know, you're, you're going to immediately want to know what does it mean that I have this title, that I have this position? And if you want to feel like a son or daughter of the father, you need to educate yourself about what it means to be a son or daughter of the Father. Begin to do a Bible study on that. Get into the Word of God and learn about who you are in Christ. Go study the book of Ephesians and learn about who you are in Jesus. And then secondly, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit in you. And He's prompting you every day, every day, to approach the Father crying out, Abba. Start doing it. Start actually listening to the Holy Spirit when he tells you to do that. Begin going to the Father as a child who is confident that the Father loves him. And begin learning and educating yourself about your status as a child of God. And through those things, you will begin to recognize the Spirit of God in you. Witnessing to your spirit that you are a son, you are a daughter of God. Finally, let me encourage you with Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 4. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Here's what Paul's saying there. Because I know that when the Father looks at me, he sees Jesus, I don't really care what anybody else thinks about me. And then he says, in fact, I don't really care what I think about me because none of that matters. The only thing that matters is who I am in Jesus. I'm a child of God. And the part about that that hits me is that Paul says, I don't even judge myself. You see, he doesn't allow his emotions to condemn him. 
He doesn't get caught up in that place of like, oh, you suck. You're such a piece of crap. You're a terrible person. You failed at that again. You're awful. You're a terrible Christian. You didn't witness when you had the ch- You didn't do that. He doesn't do that. He says, the truth of who I am in Jesus is my reality. My thoughts and feelings, even about myself, are therefore irrelevant. I don't dwell on them. I dwell on what Christ thinks of me. I dwell on what the Father says about me. I don't even judge myself. And that's where our self-esteem is supposed to come from. Not our own thoughts about ourselves. That's what religion does. Religion says I want to make myself feel better by doing things that make me feel like a good person so that I can tell myself I'm a good person. I'm going to be my own judge and I want to do the things that will let me judge myself as awesome. But what the Christian does is says, no, 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 Jesus did everything. And what I do is not what saves me. It's what Jesus has done. My hope is in Jesus. And so I don't even judge myself. Who am I? I'm who the Lord says I am. Do you always feel like the person God says you are? No. But how I feel is not relevant. What the Lord says is relevant because only what he says is true. We're sons and daughters of the living God the perfect father who invites us to come to him anytime about anything. And I love what John 3, 1 says, behold what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, children of God. It's incredible that we've received that title, absolutely incredible. And so today in our, in our coming time of worship, there's communion available in the back. I encourage you to just be at rest and rejoice and be grateful for your status as sons and daughters in the family of God. But to also, if you've been condemning yourself, to just, to just let that go and say, Lord, forgive me for confessing things about myself that you say are not true. Forgive me for believing things about myself that you've said are not true. Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together unless they're in agreement? Say, Lord, I want to agree with you, even when I don't feel it. And so I'm thankful, God, that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm thankful that I'm your son. I'm thankful that I'm forgiven. I'm thankful that I'm holy and blameless in Christ Jesus. And begin to thank him for that. And begin to draw your self-esteem and your, your peace from what the Lord says about you. So you don't get dragged into religion, trying to be your own judge and justifier. Let's pray together. Lord, we just echo the words of our brother, the Apostle John. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. It's incredible. It is unbelievable, but we know it is true and we believe it as truth, Lord God. We're your children, we're your sons, we're your daughters, we're joint heirs with Christ loved by the Father as much as Jesus and invited by Jesus to come and share in his glory, to be with him in eternity. We we can't believe that you love us that much. It's, It's just too good to be true, but it is. It is. And so if there's one thing we know for sure, Lord, it's that you love us. You love us so much. So we ask as well where we have not agreed with what your word says about us, with what you have said about us. Lord, would you forgive us?
And Lord, would you help us to release every condemning thought we have thought about ourselves that does not come for you because your word says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not justified by anything we do or don't do. We are justified by placing our faith in what Jesus has done. And we rest and put our hope in the finished work of Jesus. And we delight and find our affirmation and our self-esteem in our identity as sons and daughters of the King. We stand in that, Lord. We agree with that. And we confess that our feelings are not truthful. They are not accurate. That's why we have your word. That's why we have your spirit. And so, Lord, we choose to agree with your word. We choose to agree with your spirit that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, robed in his righteousness. And we are on course for an inheritance more glorious than we could possibly imagine. God, you're just so good. You are just so good. So would you fill our hearts with gratitude right now, with thankfulness, with peace, and with just fresh joy over our standing as sons in your kingdom, Lord. Thank you, Father. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.